Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual twofer today, the journalist Matthew Akins, one of the few Western reporters still covering Afghanistan, will talk about the situation in that unlucky country. And Christina Dunbar-Hester will look at the relationship of capitalist industry and the natural environment in and around the ports of Los Angeles. When the U.S. military left Afghanistan in August 2021, a process that began under the Trump administration that was completed by its successor, the U.S. political class, media, and public lost interest in the country, one of the poorest and most violence-damaged places in the world. The desire to forget 20 miserable years is understandable, but given how much responsibility the U.S. bears for Afghanistan's state, not just since the war that began in 2001, but also during the anti-Soviet insurgency that our government helped sponsor in the 1980s as well, it's not really excusable. My first guest, Matthew Akins, has been covering Afghanistan since his first visit in 2008. His stories first appeared in the Canadian media, and then in 2009, he began writing for American publications, first Harper's, then The Atlantic, Rolling Stone, and most recently The New York Times Magazine, where he's a contributing writer. He was one of the recipients of the Pulitzer Prize that he and Time's colleagues shared for an investigation of civilian casualties of U.S. airstrikes. His article, The Taliban's Dangerous Collision Course with the West, appeared in the magazine last August. Akins is a fellow at the Type Media Center, formerly associated with the Nation Magazine's nonprofit arm. Matthew Akins. So the girls' education story is getting all the headlines. What's going on there? What's the story behind it? Well, we've seen a slow rollback of women's rights in Afghanistan, which began with their decision not to allow Afghan girls to come back to high school in most provinces. Slowly, you've seen a restriction of women from public spaces, uh, stricter rules about wearing face coverings, what they can wear to the office. And the latest decision was that women would not be allowed to attend university. That's obviously been devastating to a lot of the urban women of the middle class who enjoyed educational opportunities under the Republic. You talked to a guy from Education Ministry uh, for your New York Times piece who uh, said, Kabul is not Afghanistan. People are not educated. They're tribal. We don't want a reaction. How deep is the rural-urban divide on this? And uh, is, does that go a long way to explain what's going on? Well, there's definitely a range of social restrictions and roles for women in Afghanistan from places like Kabul, where you had an urban middle class that actively participated in girls' education, to places like where the Taliban is from in, in Kandahar and these rural Pashtun villages, where women generally don't leave the house after puberty. There's like a deep gender segregation that's part of the society. And that's sort of the Taliban social milieu. And it colors their ideology and their vision of what gender segregation means in their version of Islam. But that being said, I think that over the past 20 years, you've had millions of Afghan families who've sent their girls to school, including from areas that the Taliban are from. And so a lot of, of Afghans have seen firsthand the benefit that uh, girls' education can bring to their families. And there has been a lot of dissatisfaction and pressure from within the Taliban's own ranks on the girls' schooling issue. But the movement is really being led by its most hardline elements grouped around the supreme leader, Sheikh Haibatullah, who is based in Kandahar. Now, you describe them as geographically isolated, ethnically Pashtun in a, in a multi-ethnic society. What precisely is the root of their hold on power? Well, first of all, the military victory that they accomplished in August 2021, which was the flip side of the complete collapse of the republic. So first of all, it's, their, it's the total um, bankruptcy of the republic, the fact that a huge number of the people who were supporting the U.S. and Western military presence there were evacuated. Right? We, we pulled out the core of the intelligentsia, the upper middle class. And so there's not really an opposition to the Taliban. And so they have very strong support and control in their rural areas, particularly in the south and east of the country, which are predominantly Pashtun. 
but they had expanded in the recent years to, to other parts of the country. But it's a fairly thin base. It doesn't have deep roots in a lot of the urban areas, for example, but there's just no credible alternative to them at the moment. And people are quite afraid of the Taliban. I mean, they have a reputation deservedly for extreme harshness, brutality, but also at the same time, their own form of justice. And that's one of the things that appealed to many people was that compared to the Republic that we supported, which was absolutely rife with corruption and committed its own widespread human rights abuses, night raids, torture and detention, the Taliban provided a measure of protection against abuses committed by some of those warlords. And they also were able to solve disputes over land through their form of justice, which is an Islamic form of justice. It's Sharia law. What about the structure of governance? There's a state of sorts based in Kabul, but there's also the Shura, the religious council based in Kandahar. They defer to the religious council on on the education decision, right? So what is the balance of power between these uh, two centers? Well, exactly. You have a form of dual authority between the formal apparatus of government that is based in Kabul with the cabinet there and the theocracy, because this is a theocratic movement with a supreme leader and a religious concept of obedience to that leader. And that leader is based in Kandahar, a very reclusive figure. This is actually quite similar to the setup that you had during the first Taliban regime in the 90s when you had Mullah Omar, a mysterious figure in Kandahar, and then the formal cabinet in Kabul, which has caused then and has caused now quite a bit of difficulty for outside interlocutors, you know, Western governments, because they're dealing with the formal apparatus in Kabul and they don't really have great visibility or communication with this network of clerics, these theocratic rulers who are based in Kandahar, but of course have influence and, and networks that spread throughout the entire country. And that is partially by design. I think the Taliban sees an advantage from being able to maintain a certain ambiguity about who is actually in charge and kind of shield their main decision makers from outside contact and scrutiny. There's a phrase in your New York Times uh, magazine article, a Taliban diplomat, which I stumbled over. First of all, one doesn't normally think of Taliban as very diplomatic, but it also made me wonder, what is the nature of their relations with the outside world? Do they have diplomats all over like a, a conventional country? They don't. The Taliban has not been recognized as the official government by any country in the world. And in most countries, they have not been able to send their diplomats abroad. So you have a strange situation where if you go to the embassy in London or you go to the embassy, the consulate in Toronto, you're going to find diplomats who are from the Republic, from the former regime, who are basically getting by by selling their consular services. But they have little to no contact with Kabul anymore. And there in Kabul, in the ministries, the Taliban have taken over they don't have a lot of capacity. These, they're led by religiously trained fighters, basically. And, and these they've kind of taken over the ministries, but a lot of people working for them are former Republic personnel, civil servants, some of them who've survived multiple changes in government going back to the communist period in the 80s. And um, that is changing slowly because some of the neighboring countries in particular, like the Central Asian states, like Pakistan, Iran... Um, have actually begun a slow normalization of their relationship with the Taliban, and they've accepted Taliban-appointed diplomats into the embassies and consulates on their territory. China's done the same thing. Russia's done the same thing. But none of those countries have gotten to the point where they're ready to formally recognize this regime, which is really, you know, by any definition, I think, a pariah regime internationally right now. And, of course, their refusal to allow Afghan women to go to high school, go to university, plays a a big role in that. What precisely is Washington's interest in or policy towards Afghanistan at the moment? You just want to be done with it? Or is there actually some lingering interest? Well, that's a good question. I think that was the question that was wrestled with for many years during the later stages of the war. What actually are we doing in Afghanistan? What is the purpose? And it became, in in some ways, kind of a self-justifying occupation, right? Where Because we're there, we need to maintain our investment we need. If we withdraw, it'll have a damaging effect on, you know, America's standing in the world. And that's obviously what has now happened. So what are indeed America's vital interests in Afghanistan? The first and foremost, of course, is preventing a threat to the homeland, like what happened on September 11th. So that's a fairly narrow counterterrorism, national security interest. Then on top of that, you have questions of, of regional stability, influence. Of course, you have a, a 
very large, quite fragile nuclear armed state, Pakistan next door, uh, that's, that's very much connected with events in Afghanistan. Also, Iran is another neighbor. There's the fuzzier humanitarian interests. I mean, I think that um, Afghanistan is in a critical situation. It's one of the world's largest humanitarian crises. The country was completely dependent on outside spending. The sudden withdrawal of that spending, coupled with the destabilization of, of this revolution, has pitched millions of Afghans into you know near starvation and they're being kept alive in part through humanitarian efforts, a massive humanitarian operation. Then there's human rights concerns. So these are all kind of in the basket that you'd hear the State Department say. But I really think that the sense that I've gotten from having been reporting on the country and speaking to a lot of U.S. officials over the last year and a half now since the collapse is that the Biden administration really doesn't want to deal with Afghanistan. It was a tremendous black eye the way that the evacuation happened, the collapse happened. And one person described to me as the main interest of the administration is making sure Afghanistan stays off the front page. So that, of course, means no terrorist attacks, but also no mass starvation, no huge refugee flows, which is probably the European Union's number one interest in Afghanistan, is is preventing a repeat of the events of uh, 2015-16, when you had the collapse of border controls and the frontiers of Europe and a massive movement of about a million people, asylum seekers into the EU. So in terms of cold-blooded interest, I'd say it's anti-terrorism, keeping Afghanistan off the front page, and for the EU, keeping out Afghan refugees. And on all three of those scores, they've been more successful than I think they hoped to be during the first days of shock after the collapse of the government in 2021. Was there a more graceful way to leave, or was it just like you just have to pull the Band-Aid off quickly? That is a very hotly debated question. I don't know whether or not there was a better way to handle the troop withdrawal at the very last stage. And this is, this is I think, what a lot of the debate's about. Could, could the deal with the talks the Taliban in Doha you know, been done in a way that would have brought the Afghan government on board earlier or not demoralized them? What was the, were the Afghans betrayed? But... The fact of the matter is, is that, you know, we were there for 20 years and the situation was just getting worse and worse. Almost everybody had lost hope that you'd be able to continue fighting this war and improve the situation. The Biden administration was handed a set of very narrow options by Trump, who had negotiated this deal where the U.S. would withdraw. They negotiated directly with the Taliban. If you're asking, was there a better way in January 2021 to handle this? I think most of the factors that led to the collapse were already inevitable. The U.S. seized, what, about $7 billion in uh, Afghan assets as compensation for 9-11. They didn't seem like they were in a very good position to pay, but that's what happened. We saw sanctions, a cutoff of development aid, then a humanitarian crisis, which uh, resulted in emergency aid. What's the situation now? And then how is the Afghan population generally doing? People are not doing well. You have collapse of the country's financial system, in part because of these sanctions, which have crippled Afghan banking. You have a sudden shock that comes from cutting off billions of dollars in development aid, just the turmoil of a revolution. It's heartbreaking every time I go back just how badly off people are. You really see it in the capital, the beggars, the bread lines. This is already one of the poorest countries in the world prior to the collapse. Now, the U.S. is in a funny position of being both one of the main causes of the Afghan humanitarian crisis because they seized all these assets that belong to the Afghan banking sector that were on deposit in U.S. banks. And you have indeed you know, said that half of them, so $3.5 billion, would be given to the 9-11 families or, or earmarked for that settlement. The other half, they're in negotiations over setting up a trust fund to, to use for Afghanistan to recapitalize the banking sector. So on one hand, they're they're a cause of this massive humanitarian crisis. And the other, they're also the largest donor to humanitarian efforts in Afghanistan. And the UN is literally flying in planes full of pallets of $100 US bills to um, fund humanitarian operations in the country, which is partially what's keeping the economy alive and keeping the the Afghani, the currency from hyperinflation. So it's a very paradoxical situation. I'm speaking with the journalist, Matthew Akins. Now, I believe you said that it was something like on the order of $100 billion in aid given to Afghanistan over the last 20 years or so. Where did it all go? Well, a lot of it ended up in D.C. and Virginia because it was paid to contracting companies for work for USAID. And a great deal of it ended up in the bank accounts of Afghan politicians 
and other members of the elite who were just rapacious in siphoning off as much as they could over the years. And we saw multiple billion dollar scandals around aid and also military contracting. Some of it, of course, did help the country. But for the most part, it was not the kind of investment that led to, you know, an increase in the country's productive capacity or would make a lasting change. And it was it was mostly spent on consumption and services. And again, that's why the country is in such dire straits right now. And it just points to the folly of trying to implement this kind of massive development spending in a war-torn situation, in a, in a conflict environment. There's ample evidence by now that that's, that it's very ineffective. But all the spending was for political concerns. I mean, the reason why we were helping Afghans was to support our own uh, military efforts there. What proportion of the skilled workers, the professional class, what proportion is left? Well, I don't know uh, the exact figures. I don't know if anyone does. More than, I think around 100,000 Afghans were evacuated in 2021. While a lot of those were Afghans who worked for the U.S. military and CIA, a lot of them were also, you know, doctors and um, university professors and Afghans who worked with foreigners and who had connections that could get them out. And in a country where you had development spending just touching every aspects of society, that really meant that this this whole elite that was able to take advantage of the opportunities post-2001, educate themselves, earn money, they were the ones who left. And... It's been a uh, tremendous brain drain. And while a lot of them would like to go back, the conditions inside the country, both in terms of how the Taliban is, is governing increasingly oppressively, and also just the fact that it's a not recognized government that's sanctioned, that's cut off from the world, is not encouraging people to go back. You said you were told by reform-minded Taliban that outside pressure would only make matters worse since those in favor of reopening girls' schools, but you know, just generally the approach to pressuring the Taliban, could be portrayed as kowtowing to the West. What do you make of that? Is that a, a genuine fear? It's true. It's also very convenient. You know, the Taliban say, well, let us work it out. We'll, we'll, we'll figure this out. And, and then eventually, I mean, what they keep saying, what they've consistently told people, their Western interlocutors, that is, is that you know, it's just a matter of time before we reopen the girls' schools and uh, there's technical issues or we have to resolve some disagreements within ourselves. And people are obviously starting to, to um, get a little tired of hearing that. But at the same time, the fact of the matter is that we have almost no leverage over the Taliban. The Taliban um, came to power by fighting a, a jihad against foreign occupation, against a you know, what they believe to be, you know, a kind of infidel or an anti-Muslim corrupting influence. And we ruthlessly hunted them down and killed them and bombed them and also sanctioned them for 20 years. So so now that they're in charge, there's very little that we can actually do to influence their behavior. And it is true the debate that's happening within the Taliban right now, which is a live debate. And this is one of the points that I was trying to make in this article, which is that the Taliban, for all that they are, are like any other group and there there's there's internal dynamics there's divisions and it it's important if you want to understand a country to pay attention to these dynamics to understand the nuances and there is a debate happening right now within the taliban about what degree of influence they should allow the west to have how much how closely they should work with humanitarian organizations what kind of compromises that there are they going to make in a situation where their country definitely needs this kind of support and so by being too aggressive about certain issues, like criticizing the Taliban's measures against women, for example, it plays into the hands of uh, some of the hardliners who say, well, you know, this is, this is what the West wants, this is what these groups want. They want us to abandon our Islamic principles that we sacrificed so much for in 20 years of struggle. And people who are who are arguing against that for their own reasons, because ultimately the reason why the Taliban, some Taliban are saying, we need to educate women is because they have daughters and they understand that their society needs educated women. Even for the most extreme visions of gender segregation, you're, you need to have female doctors to treat women and you need to have female teachers to train those doctors. And so they understand their country needs educated women, but when they make those arguments, it's easier for them to be painted as foreign stooges when there are calls by the West for the Taliban to change. So it's a bit of a dilemma, to be honest. But I think it is true that, that the pressure that we've put so far on them 
Um, and perhaps the way that it's been done has only strengthened the hardliners' resolve. And the result of that, again, is that we've seen you know, this gradual rollback of women's rights in Afghanistan. Some of the officials you talked with seem frustrated by the morality police. Um, where's the balance of power there? What's the, the state of the conflict? The morality police, you know, the, the infamous Ministry for the Prevention of Vice and the Promotion of Virtue, is just one of the religious institutions that have become the kind of personal prerogative of the supreme leader and that he and the group around him are using to strengthen their authority in the country. So they're also operating through uh, the Ulema councils, councils of religious scholars in different provinces. And they are promoting, you know, what are known as sheikhs. Those are kind of senior Islamic scholars to these positions of authority. And because this is a movement that is was based on theocratic principles, right, obedience to the supreme leader because of their belief in God, it allows them really to kind of trump card in these internal disputes. So if you're not one of the, if you can't justify your arguments religiously, then you're going to lose in, in terms of the internal discourse of the Taliban. And the morality police, the, the, the Ministry for the Prevention of Vice and Promotion of Virtue, is one example of that. And they have extended their reach in society, and they're the ones who are going out often and checking people's clothes, checking women's face veils, you know, making going into offices or hospitals and making sure the male and female patients or doctors are not coming into contact with each other. And understandably, if you're even if you're you know if you're a Taliban minister trying to get things done or you're a doctor, that can be quite troubling. Towards the end of your piece, you uh, raised the question of, as you put it, how long the Taliban, nearing their first year in power, can endure in the face of international isolation. Uh, you wrote that last summer. Where are things now? Well, they are kind of more or less where I left them in that piece. As I had analyzed with the, with the decision around girls' schools, again, you're seeing the Supreme Leader push out new restrictions now in universities. He's appointed some, some of his hand, a handpicked person at the two ministries that, are, that run education in Afghanistan, sheikhs. And the international isolation has, you know, they really, I think it really took a huge blow when um, the U.S. assassinated, you know, with a drone strike, al-Zawahiri in Kabul. You had the leader of al-Qaeda in Kabul. Not a great look. Um, and that really, I think, was a huge setback to the Taliban's efforts to open up relationships with the world. At the same time, there has been ongoing pragmatic engagement because I think a lot of countries are just looking at this very coldly from the perspective of their own interests. And the U.S. has continued to meet with the Taliban uh, in Doha. They arranged these prisoner exchanges of some U.S. hostages. So you have, you know, a kind of pragmatic level of, of, of interaction. And that's certainly their foreign picture. Domestically, I think the Taliban have, have continued to consolidate their authority. We're not seeing any like s serious signs of fissures within the movement, which is, I think, their greatest threat. And again, explains why the hardliners have been so ascendant is because that's what really unifies the core of the movement, the fighters, right? Like what they're most worried about right now. And I think this is true for pretty much any revolutionary group that takes power is a schism within their own movement. And given that there's no credible effective threats to the Taliban. The Republic was thoroughly discredited. ISIS is, despite the horrific attacks they carry out, is a marginal group. The Taliban doesn't really face any internal threats, and I don't think that any of the regional countries, nor, nor, nor the US, nor Russia, nor China, want to see a resumption of the civil war in Afghanistan. They don't want to see more violence and instability, refugee flows. So there is no interest yet in sponsoring uh, resistance to the Taliban, an armed resistance to the Taliban. And that consensus, I believe, still holds. So until one of those major factors changes, until you see either a split within the Taliban or external intervention, they're going to be around. And finally, when I talked to you a few weeks ago, you said that uh, you're one of the few foreign journalists uh, covering the country. People just lost interest. It just doesn't matter anymore. It's just fallen off the radar completely. Oh, I wouldn't say I'm one of the few foreign journalists covering the country. There are some other foreign journalists, certainly uh, quite a few, who have tried to cover the country. The Taliban is making it more difficult. I mean, one of the surprises that we had post-Taliban takeover was that they were allowing Western co correspondents to come in and report and actually do so without much in the way of restrictions initially. But of course, they have been slowly 
tightening those restrictions. They've started to block people whose reporting they don't agree with from entering the country. They've cracked down much more strictly on Afghans, uh, Afghan media. So freedom of the press uh, is gradually being restricted in Afghanistan. I mean, par for the course in that region, if you, you know, Pakistan, Iran, Uzbekistan, they all control access and reporting to their country. And as the Taliban are quick to point out, so the fear is that there will not be many journalists allowed to go to Afghanistan in the future. But for now, myself and, and the New York Times have been able to go there. And I think it is really important that we keep Afghanistan in the news and that we continue to explain in nuance the tragedy that's happening there, but also the way that it's evolving. And uh, this is a situation that we have tremendous responsibility for and it would be you know i think just um, morally abhorrent to to turn our back on afghanistan that was matthew akins a contributing writer at the new york times magazine and a fellow at the type media center his book the naked don't fear the water an underground journey with afghan refugees was published by harper collins last year and will appear in paperback next month you're listening to behind the news on jacobin radio my name is doug henwood back after a musical break Some of someone by the clean seemed appropriate with New Zealand in the news. And now, how oil, commerce, and nature coexist in and around the busiest ports in the U.S. My next guest, Christina Dunbar-Hester, is just out with Oil Beach, how toxic infrastructure threatens life in the ports of Los Angeles and beyond, published by the University of Chicago Press. We don't normally think of ports and other highly industrialized sites as ecologically rich. Quite the opposite, in fact. But they are. The ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach share space with a complex ecosystem, wetlands, the mouth of the Los Angeles River, the marine life of the Pacific. What's it like and how can we stop killing it? Christina Dunbar-Hester is a science and technology studies scholar and associate professor in the University of Southern California's Annenberg School for Communication. Christina Dunbar-Hester. Let's start with your uh, your concept of infrastructural vitalism. What do you mean by that? There are parts of this book that are speculative or, or sort of straining the boundaries of really hard and fast claims that we might make. But in reading a lot of the literature produced by civil authorities and, and port managers and such, you get the sense that they're viewing the need to keep the infrastructure running and the need to, at all costs, keep it expanding, keep it fed and happy, that it's it's taken on a sort of life force in their conception. Yeah, there are a lot of metaphors like lifeblood and you know that sort of thing, right? Exactly. So yeah, you, you will routinely see things like the 710 freeway is the spine of the region, or the Wilmington, one of the port communities, used to be called the heart of the harbor, lifeblood is routinely invoked as, you know, the lifeblood of the nation or whatever. And so partly working with anthropologists, Kath Weston's work and and some others, I was sort of like, well, what if we take this semi-literally? The boundaries of life here are not, again, hard and fast. Do we mean people? Do we mean viruses? Do we mean bacteria? Do we mean sea lions? But I am trying to provocatively juxtapose biological organismic life as we would understand it pretty traditionally with the idea that managers are imputing forces that that exceed mechanical or hard material ways we might think of infrastructure playing biological life and the idea that infrastructure is alive uh, off off each other. 
I was reminded to some degree of the way we treat the economy is this uh, thing that doesn't serve us. We we're meant to serve it, uh, and it sort of becomes our commander. Absolutely, and in fact, the work by anthropologist Kath Weston I was looking at uh, looks at moments much earlier in the history of science where the economy as a circulatory system gets constructed as a metaphoric and, and linguistic association. And, and she's arguing that that kind of language is doing real work. And so again, if we're thinking of ourselves as circulating through a, a larger whole, then that starts to naturalize and you know organicize these systems in a way that it really gives them a lot of potency and primacy in the world. So I think you're dead on there. Yeah. Oil has a very central role in, in your story uh, and the region, uh, starting with the title of the book. Talk about the role of oil in uh, both the business of the port, but also shaping the entire geography of Southern California, which I think is something people don't always think about. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's like you can read about it or something, um, but it, it becomes really striking as part of the landscape when you're here. And it is really Los Angeles and, and inland, but it, you know it's not the whole state. It's, it's some parts a lot more than others. Undersea, out in the water drilling was happening off the coast of Santa Barbara as early as the late 19th century. And the ports in LA Harbor were, were founded around 1910-ish. And at that point, oil drilling in LA wasn't important. So the ports were set up just to do regular port commerce trade. Uh, but very shortly afterwards, oil was identified both actually soon underneath the harbor itself and and quite locally in Long Beach and, and around there. The ports became dependent on trading petroleum and, and built their infrastructure to accommodate handling a lot of what's called transshipment, so moving in and moving out of, of oil, and made quite a bit of money from that. So while they did handle traditional cargo as well, it became very fixed commitment to handling petroleum by about the 1920s or 1930s. My story is really later, though. It's about you know, maybe 1960 or 1970 onward. By that period, most of the oil in the immediate area had been tapped and wasn't flowing quite as flowingly. And so the ports were turning to build up scale of, of trade, but they used oil revenue and sort of poured it back in. So even when oil's not coming out of the ground quite as much coastally, locally, uh, it's still a really important product that the ports are handling and moving in and out. And so there's ship to shore pipelines and there's a bunch of refineries that ring the harbor or are slightly inland and connected by pipelines. Yeah, the ports are just inestimably important in moving that kind of fuel around and, and fueling California, literally. Yeah, I haven't spent a whole lot of time in LA, but I remember the last time I was there, I was driving around and I was impressed by the fact that you can see oil being pumped in pretty urban areas. It's really a striking thing for, for somebody from the East. Yeah, I agree. And I was newcomer to this area before I started this project and, you know, just doing the thing where you get oriented with eyes of a stranger. And again, I sort of intellectually knew some of this, but it really is striking. And I'll also note that the places where you see oil being pumped versus places where it's more aestheticized and obscured by towers that look like other kinds of buildings or something. So there is oil drilling in parts of like West LA or even around Beverly Hills, but that'll be more likely to be hidden. Uh, where I live in Long Beach, you know, I can just literally walk six blocks from my house and see the, the pump shacks and they're, they're not being obscured in any way. And someone who reached out to me on Twitter about this book said he'd grown up in LA and they would play on the pump jacks when they were like walking to and from school. <laughs> so it's just this like really evocative thing if, if you're familiar with a lot of the geography there. A lot of your book is about um, this, this really strange hybrid zone. California is a strange place. I mean, we think of it as this place of verdant landscapes, but it's extremely industrialized. We think of it as having a very high ecological consciousness, but uh, you know, the area around Long Beach is highly polluted. Uh, and we think of you know, an area around a port or an area where oil is produced as not having much in the way of what we think of as nature. But all these things live together, right? Yeah. And, and this is really, for me, kind of the essence of the book. Partly it's a puzzle of how did California you know, if you're not in California, California enjoys a reputation as being a real environmental leader. So it's sort of like, how does California get away with 
having this public image when so much of the state, uh, and not only this port area, but other areas inland where there's you know, agriculture and there's petroleum extraction and other things. A lot of the state is really sacrifice zones for uh, extractive and industrial activity. So that's one of the questions. And the other thing coming to this, I grew up in urban Midwest and then lived in mostly urban East Coast for 25 years before moving to California. You're really struck by the recency of all of those development choices here because Philadelphia the industrial period was 200 years ago uh, or something. And California, like you can see this alternate world of teeming biodiversity and, and these other kinds of things peering at you from a much more recent period. So the choices to develop the landscape towards industrial purposes, they feel really recent and they feel really like mammoth. But yeah, part of what's so interesting about this this harbor area and uh, wetlands area that I'm writing about is, you know, it really wasn't very long ago that this was undeveloped wetlands and uh, much, much less uh, industrial in the water. And so you can tell there's, you know, marine life and bird life and plant life of, of all these kinds that were really dominant until quite recently. So yeah, there's a real sense of, um, again, a sort of wild ju- juxtaposition, which I I'm gratified to hear sounds like came through for you because in some ways the site is so extreme that I even saying it's really weird and you can feel the pulse of all this very recent transformation. I still kind of wonder if I'm underselling it <laughs> in certain ways. <laughs> well, yeah. and then, then there's the bizarre um, fact of the Los Angeles River, which is what a 50 mile concrete channel. That's right too. Yeah. And so this bay, uh, San Pedro Bay, where the ports are housed is also the terminus of the LA River, which was channelized in cement by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers after pretty major floods in the area. And so they needed the land to be stable and productive for housing and, and transportation infrastructure. So they put the r- river in cement. And th- of course, that dried up wetlands and you know their houses and port infrastructure and stuff now in floodplains. So that's another like really really extreme and really recent transformation of of that environment. And our, the U.S. Army Corps is actually now, along with the city and the county, they're considering revisiting some of that and acknowledging that it was maybe not the best choice. And the river itself is often a trickle. <laughs> right. It's often a trickle, except for like right now we're having rain, especially farther up in the state. And so it's probably is preventing flooding right now. But it's also meaning that a lot of rainwater that the state needs is just going out to the ocean instead of replenishing aquifers. How does the wildlife coexist with the port, the oil, or the industrial infrastructure? Well, <laughs> tenuously. Yes. Um, Not exactly ideal, I would think. Yeah. And, and one of the other points that I'm trying to make is the port is really just a multiplier of climate crisis and extinction crisis and all these things, because it's not only taking up physical space that could be used to house people and and wildlife and such, it's also doubling down on this system of energy. And so it's arguably driving changes, you know, locally and non-locally with with heating, or not arguably, it is. And also the period of the intensified trade, uh, so containerization and cities around the world investing in bigger and more durable ports coincides with offshoring and truly global supply chains post-1970 and deregulation. And that's also the period in the U.S. of the modern environmental movement. So at the same time that L.A. is building up infrastructure to move more and more scale of goods, there come into existence requirements for all kinds of environmental surveying and monitoring. And I'm arguing that some of that is you can almost see it as giving the mandate for the industrial activity to be perpetuated uh, because it's creating basically bureaucratic apparatus saying we counted all the plovers. And so now we're confident we can try to hit our goals of an even greater volume of containers this year. And so that's a kind of maybe counterintuitive uh, way of thinking of that. But what I see here is there's just a little bit of space set aside for wildlife, much of which is itself maybe not going extinct as quickly as it was pre the EPA, 
but isn't doing so great and is also becoming increasingly stressed, you know, as, as food and other sort of biological needs are all getting sort of thrown out of whack with heating. The little bit of space and the little bit of mitigation that the ports and the petroleum handlers agree to as a sort of price of doing business, it's pretty clearly not enough. I'm speaking with Christina Dunbar-Hester, author of Oil Beach, just out from the University of Chicago Press. Well, as you point out, that the, there seem to be much more interested after the fact cleanup uh, rather than preventing disaster or the, the slow decay induced by a petroleum-based civilization. I mean, it's a great marketing opportunity for Dawn, but otherwise it's really uh, barely a Band-Aid. That's right. The state does impose basically taxes on you know revenue for some of this handling so that there's money available uh, for cleanup and mitigation. But yeah, the the prevention side, I am very concerned about, you know, prevention of heating, prevention of spills. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious industry just accepts this as a, a cost of doing business. And we're in a really interesting, but sort of harrowing moment where as some drilling is winding down, we're going to have a really big mess on our hands. I mean, it's, if you think of even as a thought experiment, decommissioning one refinery. I mean, it would take billions and billions of dollars, like just epic, you know, super fund sort of site. And so the idea that the industry is going to be compelled to really, really clean that up thoroughly and responsibly is, again, one I'm not necessarily holding my breath on that working out super well. So even getting off of this uh, energy regime is is going to be extremely complicated. And that's something local city officials and others are, are starting to grapple with. In If things go well, I guess, <laughs> the value of oil will tend towards zero and the oil companies will go broke. They will have given all their money to their shareholders. So there won't be any money to clean up those refineries. Exactly. And we have a lot of instances with financialization and all these other things. You know, there's a lot of buying and selling of leases and trading on values of things that barely exist. And then companies will, will sort of go dark or become mysterious in terms of the ownership trail when it's time to clean things up. And, and we have evidence too that some operators are just sitting on leases that they're not even really pumping much out of, but they're either waiting to unload or seeing if subsidies will be produced from the state or something will, will avail themselves where they can get paid to abandon them as opposed to taking responsibility for abandoning them. This whole business of shipping, uh, you have a chapter on aquatic noise and what it does to whales and other marine life. The whole business of shipping is just incredibly destructive environmentally um, in so many dimensions. But yeah, I don't think people really think much about aquatic noise. It became particularly notable during that period uh, when commerce slowed down in 2020. Suddenly it was quiet in the oceans. Um, but w what about the damage that uh, um, all this, these noisy ships do? Yeah. So the two moments that there have been these big pauses in marine shipping and have given scientists, for instance, an opportunity to listen to the oceans freer of all this background noise have been after 9-11 and in the very early months of the COVID pandemic when you know, everything kind of ground to a halt for a while. Yeah, so shipping is, is destructive in multiple ways. The fuel that's currently in use is really dirty, you know, much dirtier than what you would put in a modern gas-powered car. And so it emits, you know, CO2 and, and other pollutants and drives heating. Um, but yeah, the ships themselves are really, really massive pieces of machinery. And they have these rotors, propellers underneath them that send sound really far out into the ocean. And so relatively recently, this century, uh, scientists have been paying more attention to the properties of sound underwater uh, and how it affects marine life. They've known more about sound underwater since the mid-20th century. Jacques Cousteau had described as very quiet under <laughs> in the deep ocean, right? But that was anything but true. That's right. But even even that same decade, I think that was the 1950s, you know, there were military hydrophones and uh, people sort of miking the ocean and, and starting to listen. So I don't think that that was completely correct even then. But yeah, the way sound propagates underwater is so different. I'm, I'm not even sure with our sensory apparatus, we could understand what it's like to be 
you know, an animal that's getting bombarded by unwanted sound all the time under there. But yeah, for cetaceans, for example, it really affects communication. And so all the things for navigating and chatting to your family and pod, it really affects them. And it's not only shipping, you know, there's the volume of ocean noise has doubled every decade for 50 or 60 years. And so it's also speaking of petroleum and other mineral surveying geologists do a air gun survey of the ocean floor from ships. And so they make this really, really loud noise. There's a lot of noise in the ocean, but the industrial sources are are pretty clearly, again, sort of stressing and not just cetaceans, but sort of lots of animals and having probably, you know, epigenetic effects on all kinds of complex webs of interdependency. But the shipping noise like off the coast of California, I think is really affecting the animals who are then likely to not know that a ship is maybe coming up on them. And so ship ship strikes have become a big problem off the coast here. And so whales have become such symbols, and dolphins too, have become such symbols of environmental concern, but uh, we're not really doing much for them. Yeah. And a lot of the stories in the book actually show these arcs of conservation being basically successful up to a point. So environmental interventions to bring some of these animals back from the the brink of extinction have worked, but we're stalling now, or we're, we're seeing gains that had been made starting to be reversed. With gray whales, the Pacific gray whale, Eastern Pacific gray whale, which is what we have off the coast here, is I believe the only cetacean that's ever been listed as endangered and then delisted. And yet now they're possibly in peril again. And and knowledge can lag by the time population effects are showing up. It might be a decade before scientists are sure enough to make a recommendation. That's a pretty big loss of time. But yeah, you're you're absolutely right. It's pretty clear that there is the capacity to do things, but the sort of political will to to follow through to the degree that's needed isn't often there, or it is there up until the point that it would affect military or, or commercial operations. And and then it's kind of stopping is, is what I'm arguing here. Yeah. As I think the, uh, the Corps of Engineers said in a different context, too pricey. Yeah. Or they'll say like, we're going to restore habitat, but we're starting from the premise that we're not going to interrupt any of the industrial functions here. And so, you know, that's obviously very sort of self-limiting and we should probably not be surprised if that has a pretty hard limit. We always reserve the last few minutes for the what is to be done question. You argue that cleaner energy would help some, but it's really not enough. And we have to address scale. Uh, What do you mean by that? Yeah, so I see a lot of, and I think this is the right way to do it if you're pursuing legislative goals or something, you know, you go very single-mindedly for, you know, we want enforcement of clean air standards. We want the introduction of electric vehicles for freight. These kinds of things, and those are, are right. But to me, there's a, a bigger problem here, which is scale. And the port, again, is the sort of site that multiplies uh, harm by extracting labor and material and, and energy and sort of moving it around. And so one of the things that I think we have to accept is this is just not not sustainable, and it never was. So much of what is coming in you know, to these ports, if you look at consumer goods, everybody knows that the clothes that we buy or a fridge for our house or something maybe doesn't last as long as it used to uh, or <laughs> an <Yes>. understatement. <laughs> yeah. Or like with fast fashion is, you know, only supposed to be worn a few times and then it tears and gets a hole and you throw it out and you get a new one. And all of that stuff is going into, you know, landfills and we're just hitting planetary boundaries. And so there are probably a lot of ways to handle this. And again, my, my aim in this work isn't to be really, really prescriptive about policy, but it is to sort of think speculatively and expansively. What if we started bringing in less stuff, bringing it in more slowly, using stuff that we have longer, repairing stuff when it breaks, and not putting that on the consumer? Because again, if you're really flimsy t-shirt rips, it's basically impossible to mend it. But thinking of this as a a reframing the need to have, you know, year over year growth. Port officials are very anxious if they're not showing an increase in, in shipping every year. And, and that's something where I think we could say, just wait a minute, like, let's rethink the economy and the, the goals for the state and the governance of the site and 
impose other metrics than this year-over-year growth that's just infinite or meant to be infinite, or critiques of GDP as the measure of a well-functioning society. You know, those critiques have been made since the 70s, but like we're hitting the time where we have to uh, think about this. And so one of the things that I think too is just this, this port has been beneficial in various ways, but unevenly so. And so what would be, you know, ways to think about governing it differently and, and also governing it in ways so that a better life with public goods and, and less pollution is, is provided to, to more people and also wildlife so that it's, its benefits don't accrue as unevenly and unequally as they have. And you use the phrase transspecies uh, supply chain justice. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so that's another place where, again, that's not a hard policy uh, recommendation, but really thinking of these things, you know, supply chain, labor, environment, and even various forms of community sovereignty, including people and including animals uh, or wildlife, to think of ways that you could use the site that is, I'm arguing, kind of breeding monstrosities as a way to think through supply chains and labor and resource use and rights of people, wildlife and plants, including, you know, indigenous governance to think about all of those things in this site, which again, wouldn't come with a neat uh, policy prescription, but that concept transspecies supply chain justice is a way to show that all of these things interrelate, uh, which again, I think we probably know, and they interrelate in, in very complicated ways. And any example might be really, really rich and contain a lot of recommendations, some of which might even contradict each other. But still, what, is it, what does it mean to sort of hold all of those concerns together? That's one of my goals for the book. That was Christina Dunbar-Hester, Associate Professor at USC's Annenberg School and author of Oil Beach, just out from the University of Chicago Press. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. And speaking of just out, let's go out with this. $20, one of three advanced teaser releases from the forthcoming album The Record by Boy Genius. You can't hear this, but both the album title and band name are lowercased. Till next week, bye. It's a It's an awesome.